actually dragged the great stones into place. The Giza pyramids have fascinated humankind for millennia, ever since they were built. The Great Pyramid of Khufu itself is the most famous monument in the world, and it has been visited, measured, photographed, and studied by scholars and by enthusiasts for centuries. There are countless theories as to its construction and function. It has served us for millennia as an icon of stability and permanence, and even as a symbol of magic. The Great Sphinx, carved by Khufu's son, Khafre, from an outcropping of rock in the low desert east of the plateau, has been the subject of enormous amounts of speculation and also a great deal of careful scientific study. The pyramid complexes at Giza and the cults they housed were abandoned sometime within the five hundred years following their construction. The royal tombs themselves were robbed, although we do not know exactly when, by people who seemed to know what they were doing. The temple complexes surrounding them were vandalized, the walls stripped of their reliefs, and many of the statues smashed to provide materials for later cults. We recently discovered an unfinished statue of Ramesses the Great, who ruled from about 1304 to 1237 BC, carved out of a block of red granite that had been used as casing in the complex of Khufu's grandson Menkauri. Thus the pyramids were used as quarries by the descendants of their builders and continued to be gradually robbed of their stone over the millennia. The pyramids, and especially the Sphinx, were the focus of various cults during the later pharaonic period. King Amenhotep II, circa 1459 to 1419 BC, erected a temple to the Sphinx on higher ground to the north. His son, Thutmose IV, whose claim to the monarchy seems to have been a bit shaky, set up his own stele, carved on a stone from one of the original temples at Giza, between the paws of the Sphinx. On it he tells the story of how, as a young prince, he had been hunting in the desert nearby and had fallen asleep in the shadow of this great beast, potent symbol of kingship throughout Egyptian history. The Sphinx had spoken, begging the prince to clear away the sand that now choked him up to his neck and promising, in return, the throne of Egypt. Both the prince and the Sphinx kept their promises. Thutmose IV cleared away the sand and did indeed become pharaoh. The cults at Giza were revived again later, during the 26th dynasty, 664 to 525 BC, when there were priests of the Giza pyramid builders, and an active cult to the Sphinx itself. Herodotus, the Greek traveller known as the Father of History, visited Giza during the 5th century BC and came home with all sorts of fantastic tales. Khufu was portrayed by him as a cruel, heartless ruler who used his subjects as slaves and even forced his own daughter into prostitution. By the Roman period, from 30 BC until the 4th century AD, Giza had become a tourist attraction. The Jewish historian Josephus, writing in the late 1st century AD, first disseminated the persistent and completely untrue myth that the Hebrew slaves had worn themselves out building the pyramids. By the end of the 4th century AD, there was no one left who could read the ancient hieroglyphs. Myths and legends already swirling around the massive monuments multiplied and spread. The idea that the shape of the Great Pyramid served to keep metal from rusting, later expanded to include other magical preservative qualities, was first propounded by an Arab historian named Al-Makrizi in the 15th century AD. 
I have carried out my own experiment on this subject. I placed a pound of raw meat on a bookshelf in my office at Giza, and a second pound in the burial chamber of Khufu's pyramid. I am sorry to report that the two samples decayed at the same rate, and that it took several weeks for my office staff to recover completely from the smell. I will not be repeating this experiment. The Great Pyramid was first breached in relatively modern times by the Caliph al-Mamun. In around A.D. 820, he and his men either forced, or, more likely, enlarged an entrance a little below and to one side of the original entrance in the north face, which had been closed and hidden completely by the ancient builders. It is not certain exactly what the Caliph's men found. The most they may have discovered were some decayed bones inside Khufu's granite sarcophagus. Ancient robbers had long ago taken away the treasures buried with the king. Unfortunately, although such bones would have been a great treasure for modern archaeologists, they were considered completely unimportant by the caliph, and were discarded. The casing stones covering the three pyramids, which would have given them a smooth-sided appearance very different from what we see today, were still relatively intact in the early 12th century A.D., but the modern city of Cairo was thirsty for building material, and the casings of the pyramids and their temples were almost completely stripped between this time and the late 19th century. European visitors began to add Giza to their itineraries in the 12th century AD, and for five centuries a slow but steady stream of travellers came to gaze upon the pyramids and sphinx. Many went home and wrote memoirs, often accompanied by at best inaccurate at worst inadvertently humorous sketches of the antiquities. The first modern scholar to visit Giza was John Greaves, a professor of astronomy at Oxford University in the mid-seventeenth century. He produced reasonably precise measurements and a detailed description, and concluded, based on his study of classical sources, that the pyramids were tombs built to ensure the eternal survival of the souls of Cheops, Greek for Khufu, Kephren, Kafre, and Miserinus Menkaure. Benoit de Meillet, French consul-general to Egypt from 1692 to 1708, was fascinated by the pyramids and made excellent drawings of the passages and chambers within the Great Pyramid. The next century saw a surge in the number of travellers who took it upon themselves to make accurate records of the monuments they visited. Some of their descriptions are not quite on target, and their artistic abilities were decidedly uneven, but the records they left are invaluable, and often give us information about details that have since disappeared. The fledgling science of Egyptology was put on a whole new footing by Napoleon Bonaparte, who brought a team of 150 scientists and scholars with him on his great expedition to Egypt in 1798. These men spent three years documenting everything they could, including the ancient monuments then visible and produced an enormous illustrated treatise called the Description de l'Egypte. The Napoleonic expedition touched off a new surge of interest in ancient Egypt. This resulted on the positive side in a significant increase in the number of scholars who devoted themselves to the study of the ancient culture. This number included Jean-Francois Champollion, who brought the silent hieroglyphic writings back to life in 1822. On the negative side, Collectors, both private and museum-sponsored, acquired an insatiable hunger for antiquities, and the rape of the ancient monuments began in earnest. An orgy of destruction sent a steady stream of statues, mummies, reliefs that had been ripped from their tombs, and anything else that could be loaded onto a ship back to Europe. 
the excavators who sent these materials back home, destroying important evidence in the process of removing them from their original contexts, were often the same scientists responsible for studying them and preserving them. Egyptology was accompanied at its birth by a dark twin, which we now refer to politely as pyramidology. Mystics and pseudo-scientists began to come up with all sorts of far-fetched theories, sometimes based on coincidence and sometimes completely made up, to explain the pyramids. One of the first was John Taylor, who claimed in 1859 that the Great Pyramid was a record of the measure of the earth, and believed that the Egyptians knew the value of pi. He was followed by Charles Piazzi Smith, who thought that the Great Pyramid was a scale model of the Earth's circumference, built using a unit called the Pyramid Inch. He also believed that the interior chambers and passages of this monument had embedded in their measurements prophetic messages about important future events left there by the lost tribe of Israel, who were also the ancestors, somehow, of the British. One of Smith's disciples was a young man named William Flinders Petrie, who came to Giza in 1880 to re-measure the Great Pyramid. His meticulous work disproved Smith's theories beyond a doubt, and he left pyramidology to embrace the field of Egyptology. He carried out numerous rigorous scientific excavations, inventing and refining a new methodology as he worked, which formed the basis for the new discipline of archaeology. His excellent studies of the Giza pyramids are still useful today. Petrie was followed at Giza by a number of scientific expeditions, most notably the Americans under George Reisner, the Germans and Austrians under Uwe Hölscher, Georg Steindorf and Hermann Juncker, and the Egyptians under Selim Hassan. These men carried out explorations of the three pyramids, their temple complexes, and the many tombs...